Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, we are taking a look at the possibility, the possibility that maybe, maybe, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders is not going to win the Democratic primary. We know how difficult this prospect is for some people to face. We are being gentle. But as it is one of many possibilities, we're going to ponder what could be next for the movement he's engendered and the issues they've elucidated in the event that Sanders' revolution has to start somewhere other than the Oval Office. Joining us to discuss this is MTV News' Anna Marie Cox. Meanwhile, President Barack Obama traveled to Saudi Arabia this week to meet with our best frenemies in the war on terror. Our diplomatic relationship with the kingdom, which is awkward on its best days, has been considerably strained of late. And adding to the tension is a bipartisan bill in the Senate, supported by both presidential candidates on the Democratic side, that would allow victims of terrorist attacks to sue states that sponsor terrorism. It's a bill that Obama's threatened to veto, and its very existence has him in a bind. Finally, public safety advocates are warning that the United States Senate is about to make our lives much more dangerous by passing legislation that will loosen what are already pretty loose regulations on truckers and the length of their work week. We'll explain the impact these rules have on public safety and how Congress manages to slide this sort of nonsense into law. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Mike McAuliffe, and Jessica Schulberg. We'll also have a full accounting of this week's primary in New York. In fact, that's what's happening first. Hello, good people of America and the world. Welcome to another edition of So That Happened, your ongoing podcast of the week in the things that make us angry and feel miserable in politics. I'm Jason Lincoln, the host of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. We have a really good show for you today, and we're going to kick things off with our good pals, Zach Carter. Hey. That... Keeping I'm, it. I'm not going to make a joke about how I live in a tent in the Keep, studio. Cool. Good, don't make one. Like, cool. Ooh, no. Boy, it reminds me of waking up. Good deal. Out of this good deal. Place and, uh, where I live. And Arthur Delaney, who lives in a home. Hi. It's nice to be with you. So, uh, you know, so this week there was a there was a big uh, primary contest in a critically underserved region. When you talk about the media, so it's really good <laughs> that we are uh, going to shed some light of uh, what's happened in the uh, the remote redoubt known as New York. Uh, the Democrats and Republicans had their presidential primaries, and we move one step closer to the primaries being over. <laughs> I, I thought the results were um, predictable, but I thought they were still really interesting. Um, what did you find interesting about them? Mo- the most interesting stuff, I mean, I've been studying the Democratic side of this more closely than the Republican side. Mm-hmm. So Sanders lost by like 16, 17 points, about the margin by which Barack Obama lost in 2008 to Hillary Clinton. Right. But if you look at the county by county breakdown, 
Uh, Clinton won all but one county in 2008. This time around, she only won 13. She Mm. basically only won New York City, Buffalo, Rochester, and Syracuse. And everywhere except New York City, it was very, very close. Like a little bit of Long Island, too. We're going to count Long Island. We're going to count that as New York. Um, But she was not... uh... How how much farther ahead was she in 2008? Well, what do you mean? In the polls, how much further along was she in 2008 when she when she pasted Obama in New York? No, I don't remember. But she's a senator from New York. She's going to beat him no matter where they were. Okay. But what you're saying um, is that there was more widespread affection in the state for Obama. Uh, sorry, for Hillary Clinton uh, in 2008 than there turned out to be uh, this year for her. I could tell you that uh, it was touch and go, but uh, Bernie Sanders won. Uh, Chautauqua County, crucial Chautauqua County, yep. where um, where I believe her uh, her second home is. I'm not 100 percent on that, but I'm pretty. Well, sure hey, check this out. You know, we we have this guest um, Zephyr Teachout who comes on pretty frequently. She's running for Congress in New York. When she challenged Andrew Cuomo in 2014, she took 34 percent of the vote. Now, in a much bigger you know presidential primary race, Sanders was able to extend that share to 42 percent. That's an increase of, of like 20 percent of the of the share there. Um, that's a significant increase when you're running at someone who's very popular in the state. He still can't win black voters, um, which is, I think, just going to be the case for the rest of the cycle. Right. Um, and that's why that's why he loses. But he also is fighting corporate power. And New York City is sort of the heart of the multinational corporate board. Um, and when you when you talk about Wall Street and monopolies, you know the people who benefit from these are not people who live in rural rural New York. They're right, people yeah. who live in the city, and a lot of those people do vote Democratic. Um, so I thought th- those results were really interesting. So you know, th- for people who were feeling the burn, who feel burned, you know, he's not going to be the nominee. But uh, but you know that message does seem to be resonating. But the the basic takeaway from the New York primary was that Hillary Clinton is now more inevitable as the nominee than ever. And what you're saying is. Bernie Sanders is still doing remarkably well. Well, that his that his message and that the direction of the party is clearly uh, has clearly shifted in the last just the last couple of years, even within even within New York, which is, you know, Wall Street's not a metaphor when you're talking about the New York primary. It's actually a street. (laughs) You know, what's striking to me now as the Clinton campaign ramps up the idea that it's victory is inevitable is how similar that argument is to what she says about her policy positions just being more possible and more practical. Well, and she's going to win. I mean, I, I kind of I kind of don't blame her. If I were in, the, in her shoes, I would be saying the exact same things. Get out of my way. But the longer Sanders stays in the race, even if he's not going to win, the bigger share of delegates he has at the convention and, and the, the greater the concession he can extract from Hillary Clinton in exchange for support and, and uniting the party. So, I, you know, I think if I were Sanders, I would stay in the race as well. Try to try to get the, the most you can out of this. You've, you've been doing it a year. You yeah, only need a couple more months. He's he's well funded. He's well supported. There's no reason in the world for him to drop out of the race until such time as the math absolutely clinches it for her. And we still have ways to go in that. The one thing I worry about when we're talking about the Sanders campaign is they seem to be now at sixes and sevens about what they want to do. You have Tad Devine essentially endorsing your view of of how to proceed from here, which is to stick with it, keep making points, keep forcing Clinton to deal with issues that she hasn't dealt with before and keep manifesting an interest in these topics among the electorate to come. But then you also have Jeff Weaver. There's always some weird campaign manager named Weaver in these things, I have to say, uh, because there's John Weaver on the Republican side running Kasich's campaign, Kasich's campaign. Um, but but uh, but he now believes that the hot war is still on 
And last night was talking about, you know, well, if we're not going to win the popular vote, which they're not, and we're not going to win the pledge delegate votes, which they're not, the plan will be to flip superdelegates at the absolute last second based on head-to-head polls conducted about November. That's crazy. Who really is paying attention to whether or not, you know, the Sanders campaign actually tries to flip superdelegates out there? I mean, Jeff Weaver is just talking after a big loss. Uh, and he's trying to, I think he's just trying to give, you know, Sanders diehards a reason to, to stay invested and, and keep, Wait, keep following they, the Wait, so they, the they need a reason? I thought that they were part of a revolution. I mean, I think, I think generally you want to convince people that you have a shot at winning when you are running a campaign. Well, it makes it easier to raise money and to get people to come out to the polls. It's a lie. He does not have a shot at winning, and he's not going to flip superdelegates. And, and superdelegates are anti-democratic, which was something the Sanders campaign was crying about, you know, three months ago. Um, now that it's their last-ditch hope, they're talking about it. I'm shocked to learn that Sanders delegates do not just simply op- – sorry, Sanders supporters do not just – simply operate with certainty and they need propping up from time to time. The superdelegate game is really serious on the other side. How I mean, so? I mean, they, don't have, they don't have the, de- the delegate game, I mean. It is yes, a little bit with serious. pledged and unpledged delegates. Right, so, you know, the, bound on, and he doesn't have, if Donald Trump doesn't have enough, he can then lose because Ted Cruz is already sewing up the second ballot commitment from the people he can. Right. Last week, it was reported that in Georgia, another state where uh, the cruise operation has been working really hard to prize those delegates at the state conventions, that Trump got entirely outworked in Georgia. There's this new guy at the at the Trump campaign named Paul Manafort, who uh, I think worked for the Ford campaign so long and so before <laughs> even my time that I can't even keep track. But he's supposed to be their delegate picker. He was widely... Not widely, but he was he was he was credited last night for uh, the way in which Trump affected a quote more presidential tone, and that he wasn't a complete uh, asshole <laughs> during. That's that's the sliding standard yeah. for presidentialness. It yeah. wasn't a total bell end, you know, just a little bit. Um, what do we make of what Trump's how he's going from here? Certainly, last night was a big way to bolster the opportunity, the cha- the idea that he's going to hit that magic number now. A strong argument has emerged that he's just looking for a way to get out of this thing. And he, Wait, he that, lo- you just took it in a 180 direction. No, no it's not a 180 <laughs> because in this theory of Trump, the delegate game is his way out because he can leave with his dignity intact by saying, the election was stolen from me by... <laughs> and then right. he doesn't have to worry about the and annoying process he, of being president. And that's why he talks about it constantly. Yeah, I think it was Drew McGarry. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. Yes, him and and uh, and other people, including the red state crowd. Right. It's a it's a thing that is alive. This Drew McGarry is a very funny writer. By and, the I, way. and I have uh, his book, The Post Mortal, is one of the best science fiction books I've ever but read. This is something that people have thought about Trump all along that he didn't really want to be president. And and this thing has just gotten out of hand. Last night was a bad night for him. Then yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 you're saying you're saying this is really this is really interesting because I'm actually writing a piece lampooning the media for going a bit gaga over the fact that he was quote presidential last night. But this is a theory I didn't I I don't even contend with in a piece. And I'm not sure I'm going to that he was he was subdued last night because he was disappointed. Yeah. However, it still is helpful for it to be more outrageous when the nomination is stolen from him. I mean, he doesn't want to like start actually losing now. 
No, that's uh, definitely true. his plan is to escape at the convention, things, the status quo can continue until then. Just to recap, it uh, appears Trump got 89, maybe 90 delegates uh, from New York's total of 95 that were available. He won every county except Manhattan. Uh, well, they know him best, don't Well, they? yeah, but he still <laughs> needs to get 65% of what's left in order to be the outright winner, which he might not. And Well, if what you're saying is true, then he's got a lot more disappointments to come. Because <laughs> he's going to be sorry slash grateful right. about the primaries to come because uh, they're all in areas where he's projected to do well, Connecticut, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I, just, I suppose that maybe there, there, there are factors in Pennsylvania that can help hold down, the, hold down his delegate count. But we're really only talking about crews rising back up atop the ladder once we get to a place like Indiana. By the way, the, the, <laughs> the whole idea of uh, Ted Cruz in New York is just, like, funny. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just, just like, humorous. It is, it is very <laughs> funny to me that Ted Cruz even bothered competing in New York after he slammed the entire state. And it, once again, goes back to the thing I keep talking New about. New York values. New oh, York God. values. He is, he is a haughty fuck, that Ted Cruz. But, but like if he had just been at any time since he came to, to the Senate, like half the dick he really is, he'd be doing a lot better. Cruz got a cruise, man. You know, th- that's the thing. No matter what happens for Donald Trump, whether he wants to, wants to win the nomination or not, we know that the Republican Party is completely screwed at their convention and in November. We saw in exit polls last night. You were really far ahead of this. A majority. They're screwed in November. They're totally screwed. Ted it's Cruz. true. Both Ted Cruz and Donald Trump are unelectable at the national level. If they put in some established, sneak some establishment, you know, third candidate guy in there at the convention, they're going to piss off half of their party who, you know, even if Trump doesn't get to an outright majority, he's going to get to like 48, 49%. And just think about Ted Cruz. He has to keep being Ted Cruz no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> he can't just go to Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> That's very true. There we go. The New York primary. Um, hopefully someday we'll get some reporters and news organizations to to populate that part of the country. But until then, I'm afraid that New Yorkers will have to live in obscurity. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
Hi, welcome back. So, as we've already discussed, this week we had a primary in New York State, and this week it allowed Hillary Clinton to take a further lead and pledge delegates over Bernie Sanders. And so we had to force, we had to maybe confront the possibility, the possibility that maybe Bernie Sanders is not going to win this primary. I know that's going to what upset a lot of people, but it is one of the possibilities. So what happens from there? Um, joining us to talk about this is uh, Arthur Delaney. Hi. And from Minneapolis, Minnesota, our good friend, founding editor of Wonkat, who went on to write every other place in the world. Now she is at MTV News, kicking up dust with some very good people like Dan Fearman and Holly Anderson. Anna Marie Cox. Yes, hi. Hey, guys. It's good to be back on the cast. Yes, and we should save right from the outset. Let's just plug it. In in weeks to come, MTV News will be launching their own podcast slate, correct? That is correct, and uh, it will include a political podcast called The Stake, um, where you may, in fact, see the resurgence of the some of my best friends segment that I used to do for my own podcast. The Stakes. Um, which I'm excited about. But the stakes will be like sort of a general political podcast with a bunch of us. Is this stakes like stakes through the heart or stakes like yum? What a delicious steak. It's it's like stakes as in what matters, which I guess could be stakes as in yum. But, you know, like it's more like poker stakes. Gotcha. Stakes you would raise or lower as the case may be. Which, again, could apply to other kinds of stakes. But, you know, we'll just stick with it's the stakes. Um, but let's stick to Bernie Sanders because that's, yeah, hey, you know what? It's what is at stake here with Bernie Sanders? That is what we could say in terms of a nice segue. One of the things that comes to mind is, of course, Bernie Sanders has, uh, throughout his campaign, and whether you want to, whether you believe it was perhaps a, a campaign that always intended to compete for the presidency or, or, or candidacy that wanted to join in the presidential primary to shine light on issues that don't often get talked about. It's clear that Sanders has been largely successful at uh, bringing a lot of attention to issues like income inequality uh, and, and wall street. Uh, and I think it's engaged, obviously a lot of people around these issues, people who of course, uh, were part, some of the voiceless uh, during the financial crisis of 2008 and who have like gr- now grown up, um, gone to college, entered the job market in a world that's a little bit more broken than it was before the crisis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, I am, let's see where to begin. Um, I am hopeful about that part of the Sanders legacy in the sense that I think he, I think he may have opened up the left end of the political spectrum in a way that was actually closed off by the Clintons themselves, you know, with their new Democrat bullshit. Right. You know? <laughs> um, and, and in that way, there's sort of a very satisfying poetic justice to seeing Hillary being, you know, pulled so far to the left by Sanders. And I appreciate what Sanders has done in terms of, um, People, you know, the, I think the mainstream knock against Sanders is, his, is that his policies are kind of pie in the sky. But he's made a, a he's made it able to uh, made us able to imagine a thing like free college, free public college education, or or, or you know universal health care, where we used to be told by people like the Clintons 
But that stuff was simply, un, un, you know, it, not pragmatic. We can't do it. It's off the table from the very beginning. But Anna Marie Cox, she's still saying that. I mean, that's when she's like, yeah, universal health care sure would be great, but it's not practical, so I won't do it. Right. She's still saying that, but there's now, like, a generation of people who've heard it from Sanders and who believe him when he says that it's possible, you know? And I think that there are, there are people who, who see in, in Clinton uh, the lack of imagination or cynicism that has always been there, and it's just being shown up as that. But do you, do you think that that, uh, that he's really ignited a movement on, for instance, universal health care that will persist in the future when we've probably got President Hillary Clinton, who has already said no to this whole idea? That is the question, right? And then I think the Hillary people, I mean, it's going to depend uh, somewhat on Hillary and somewhat on Sanders. I have to say that the rhetoric I've heard from from Clinton supporters around the Sanders movement has been disappointing. That's been that's been actually a weird, persistent theme in Clinton's campaigning is that where she could stop short of saying something that really just sort of impugns liberalism or impugns democracy, uh, she goes whole hog after it. Like instead of simply saying, "Look." The situation is we have Obamacare. It's a worthy project. And we have to spend four years defending it against an entrenched Republican majority that's going to take some time to to remove from their safe seats if, it, if we could do it at all. And you need someone who's willing and able and capable of operating that system and being a bulwark against going back. Instead of just simply making that argument, which, which I will she does say, make. which she does make, instead of stopping short, stopping there. And it's a compelling argument. I, I, I can see why she would make it. She goes on to simply just impugn ideas that have animated liberals in America for generations. She'll go on to just say that, well, universal health care is bad and you're stupid for wanting it. Free college is bad and you're stupid for wanting it. Well, she, they, say, they say your numbers don't it wouldn't even work. Right. Well, she she also spreads fear of taxation, which is, you know, honestly something that Grover Norquist probably sits back and enjoys watching her do. I agree. I agree. Because, you know, I mean, like the reason that, that, that tax fear mongering works is because of conservatives. Like the thing about progressives and our theory of government and theory of government spending, like we shouldn't be using that argument. <laughs> you know? Like it goes against like the way that we think government works and the way that we think taxation should work to say that higher taxes are just bad, period. You know? Like that's not part of our argument. And I, I so so I feel like there's some onus on on the Clinton, you know, people or the Clinton supporters and Clinton herself to like to change some of the rhetoric. If if we want to keep those people animated, if we want like this, the statistic that blows my mind is that more people under 30 have voted for Sanders than have voted for the entire you know Republican candidate slate combined under 30 voters. That's that's a scary number, you know. I think if you're if you're a Clinton person, if you're an establishment Democrat, that means that that that's the next generation of Democrats, right? And I I think to tell them that you're stupid and wrong and your ideas are bad and that's why you're losing is is probably not wise. But but these are people who have also told posters that for the most part they would be okay with Clinton. Like they're not going to vote for Cruz or Trump. Oh, 
Oh, they're not going to. And actually, I don't mean for this election. That's, I'm not worried about that, actually. I, am, I'm, I think that's fear-mongering on the part. That's more fear-mongering to say that these Bernie supporters are, 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 are going to be, you know, spiteful and just in, and vote for a Republican. I think that's nuts. Um, I, I am worried about 2020. That's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about 2020. I'm worried about 2018. I'm worried about people like not realizing that you know these midterm elections is where is is where they could have a huge influence. You know, like imagine getting just a portion of that demographic that turned out for Bernie to get animated about you know county elections. Well, you've got to. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree with you there because this is this is a game. This is really where Sanders supporters can change the game and actually take away some of the power from DC elites. The DNC right now has 27 seats where they're not even running a Democrat uh, this, this time out in, in for Congress. And it's, it's just ridiculous that that's the case. The, but if the Sanders movement needs to have the vision to, to scale down their approach to this revolution of theirs and not implant a revolutionary in the white house, but Put revolutionaries on county boards. Put them in state legislatures because that's what Republicans have done for generations. They've been good at it. The, the the Republican voters are so excited to turn out to vote in small elections, and it's just an enthusiasm doesn't exist on the Democratic side right now. I do have one fear with 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 uh, with Sanders bringing so many of these issues that I write about a lot and I talk about a lot into the hotbed of a campaign. And I have problems with the style in which he's campaigning that gives me a little bit of fear. And maybe you can assuage my fears or tell me I'm, I'm wrong here. But I think that if you get past the idea that, first of all, it's it's a it's a hot environment, a presidential campaign, where obviously the, the goal of your competitors to distort and discredit you, um, to bring issues I care about into it, it's, it's, I've watched them come under attack. I've also sort of watched Sanders cope with it. And my my problem with maybe the way Sanders has approached talking about these issues is that there is still in his mind, I think, a little bit he's too much of the belief that the truths he's talking about are self-evident, that it doesn't require a level of persuasion beyond simply reading off a flashcard every time he's in a debate. I'm reading a book right now by David Dayan called Chain of Title, and it's about mortgage securitization. And it doesn't take many chapters before you get into the idea that the entire industry of mortgage securitization is essentially built around the notion of fraud, that you can uh, completely bamboozle homeowners, pass the literal chain of title around from bank to holding company to bank, completely confuse them, literally forge documents, literally create uh, uh, use notary fraud as part of your industry. And keep people at such a great distance from the information they need to get out of foreclosure that it's clearly a criminal enterprise. Now, a Bernie Sanders will just simply come up on this stuff and say, the business of Wall Street is fraud, and leave it at that. David Dan could have done the same thing, but instead he wrote a book, and there are personal stories in this book, and there are characters in this book, and there are people he can point to who are doing things both on the good side and the bad side. And I don't see the depth of imagination in the Sanders campaign, even though they care about these issues, I'm sure as much as a guy like David Dan does. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think, you know, that you're asking a little bit for the entire character of American campaigning to change. If that, if you want that kind of campaigning and I'm pro I'm for that. And, and, and I, 
I do think that there's not much you can do in a presidential campaign to actually educate people, unfortunately. I mean, that's, I mean, if, unless we change it, which the Sanders people could do. I mean, like you could say that that's their next responsibility. I, for one, I, when just, when Sanders gets up there and says the business of Wall Street is fraud, I like, I, I do a fist pump. I guess my worry is that the way Sanders has sort of campaigned on the issues, I worry that he is engendering fatigue in the people he'd most like to persuade rather than, uh, you know, a sort of like energizing, uh, being an energizing force. I'm worried that at the end of this primary, when I come back in, at the end of this election, when I come back next year and I'm writing about income inequality, when I'm writing about wall street, uh, more Democrats can be like, ah, oh, you sound like Bernie Sanders. But I also think that he's, he has motivated, he has brought in so many people. You know, like, it cannot be stated. Like, the demographic gulf of what, of what Bernie Sanders has done is staggering. If this were not such a crazy election in general, that would be the only thing we'd talk about. Now, I recognize that, on, that some percentage of those people, probably the large, larger, largest percentage, are going to fall away for whatever reason. They're going to get tired of the issues. They're going to feel like they lost, and so the issue is dead. Um, they're just going to go on and, you know, get jobs and raise kids or whatever. They're going to, their attention will be spanned. Some percentage of them are going to stay with it. Some percentage of them, and, it's, and I hope it's a, a somewhat significant percentage, are going to be the people that run for office in 2018. You know, that are going to be themselves the super delegates in 2020. Well, think about it, socialists. If you run for county board and you're responsible, and you do good things for people, and you treat people well, and you're honest, they'll give you another shot. So think about the revolution in those terms, and please, please help us take back the county boards and state legislatures from the people who are writing abortion laws. Uh, yeah, transgender laws, you know, transgender bathroom you know, outlaw laws. Yeah. That, that shit happens at the county and the state level, you know, and school boards. Yeah, you know, like we we need we need more of the pe- Bernie people on school boards. We need them, and we need them everywhere. Again, like my hope is that they'll be the super delegates in twenty twenty. That would be cool as hell. Uh, although super delegates, we will say, should be gotten rid of. All right, Anna Marie, Anna Marie, thanks for joining us. We look forward to having you back again. We look forward to MTV launching their podcast network, and we look forward to reading more of your great work over at MTV News. All right, thank you, Jason, and thank you, Arthur. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. And we'll be right back. And we're back. Uh, joining me right now to talk about an important issue, we have Arthur Delaney. Hi. We have Michael McAuliffe. We're going to talk today about trucks. Yeah, trucks. And big trucks. We're going to talk about truckers. Yeah, big truckers. We're going to talk about falling asleep at the wheel. Uh-huh. Big truckers fall asleep at the wheel a lot. And we're going to talk about the sort of like sordid connection between industries, lawmakers, and public health. So uh, it wasn't long ago, a few years ago, uh, a guy I think we all know, comedian, not, not personally, it would be great to know him personally, but a guy we all are aware of, uh, SNL comedian and sitcom actor Tracy Morgan was in a terrible accident in New Jersey involving an exhausted 
trucker, which collided with the limousine he was traveling in. It put him in the hospital for quite some time. He was in a coma. And it killed a guy. And it yeah. killed a guy. It killed one of his friends and writers, comedian James McNair. Yeah. And it's been a... It's been, uh, I think, for everyone involved in that uh, devastating path back. And I think that at first blush, when you look at what happened to Tracy Morgan and his friends, you think, well, God damn it, uh, irresponsible trucker, menace on the streets, something's got to be done. But when you dig down into this issue, you find out it's really not necessarily the trucker's fault this happens. There's a huge amount of pressure on truck drivers. Um, and this guy, Kevin Roper, worked for Walmart, and they're one of the better ones. They're they're like one of the examples of some of the things you do right. Nevertheless, these guys have really long routes. It's really difficult often for them to even get started on their routes. And then they've got hours and hours behind the wheel. So when they're finally getting there after traffic and traffic jams... They're really worn out, and this particular guy, Kevin Roper, is right near the end of the 11 hours he was allowed to drive legally, and he just nodded off the wheel and plowed into a bunch of people. So tell us about the rules. Like, what are the limits on how much a trucker can be asked to drive by a company? Well, there's a couple of things. The, the, the most important ones to look at are you get 11 hours of driving, 14 hours of work in a day. And in theory, when they wrote those rules, it was supposed to max out at 70 per week. But there's this little technical thing called a 34-hour restart. And since it's not a full two days, you can rotate that almost like a lunar calendar so that you can use that restart before the week is out and start working again. So it's, it sounds like a shorter weekend. Yeah, it makes like a shorter weekend. And then you, you use up those. It's basically a, a day and 10 hours of rest is right. what they came to that number from. So if you sort of keep starting as soon as you can, you can wind up working 82 hours in a week. Now, there's been lots of legal fights over this. They they started the thing in 2003 under George Bush. They fought about it for years in the courts, 10 years, and they finally came out with a rule that said, okay, you really have to have two nights of sleep, two full nights. You can't be on the road between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., two nights in a row. Well, July 2013 is when that happened. The trucking industry hated it, so they went to Congress, and they got them to delay that rule, to suspend it for at least a year, and they've gone back and back to keep it from ever happening. So they are kind of a a lobbying powerhouse, is that right? Yeah, they are a lobbying powerhouse, and when I added up the numbers over the last five, six years, it was uh, over $100 million spent, more than $20 million a year, primarily lobbying, but also a whole lot on campaigns, and mostly to Republicans, but a lot to Democrats, too. They are one of the uh, lobbying interests that like just has its own house on Capitol Hill yeah. near the Capitol. Like, a, people don't realize that they're... Lobbies just own property around where they can have fundraisers and, like, plot their attacks. You know, I have to ask, what do you think or do you know uh, the truckers themselves want in terms of a work week, in terms of a schedule? Because I have to imagine that they kind of have to play these rules pretty close to the margins just so that they get paid a decent wage. 
Yeah, absolutely they do. I mean, it, it really goes all the way back to Jimmy Carter, uh, everyone's favorite liberal Democratic president, who deregulated the trucking industry, at least the economic side of it. In the late 70s, 1980, they threw out all these strange rules about what routes you could drive and how much you could charge for the route, and they had all kinds of rate setting and things like that. But they, the one economic rule they didn't throw out was no overtime for truck drivers. So you get rid of all the regulations, you don't have to pay truckers overtime, so they get these really long days, they don't get extra compensation, they only get paid for the miles driven or the load carried. Doesn't matter how long it takes for wow. them. So the pay has actually fallen, you know, adjusted for inflation since the 70s. It's lower now than it was then. So uh, there are kind of a lot of truck wrecks every year in this great story you filed that was published this week. There's a graphic that shows the bars going up from 2009 through 13. Almost 4,000 truck wrecks every um, year. Almost 4,000 fatalities. There's, there's like 100. I forget what the exact number is, but there's like 100,000 crashes every year. Oh God! Does it <laughs> you know? does it correlate to uh, changes in the law mandating how many hours these truckers have to work? Well, it seems to correlate. Now you'd need to do a very careful scientific study to to figure out the the real, actual, hardcore truth. But it correlates with two things that I can tell. Number one is the economy picking up so that there's greater demand on the truckers. Yeah, so there's more more stuff being right, shipped. More around. stuff being shipped. And the other thing is Congress has indeed been weakening some of these regulations. So you 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 probably can't draw a perfect, you know, sure. chart with that. And we'll remind people the, that right. correlation doesn't equal causation. <laughs> We're just talking right now. Correct. But you've got those those two the economic trends and you've got the congressional legislation all happening at the same time while there are more accidents. So, you know, draw your own conclusion. 4,000 deaths every year from just truck wrecks seems like a lot. Though I don't know, you know, we get the scientists in here to talk about population size. Right, yeah. And well, it's less than cancer and less than gun violence, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not at all reassuring. <laughs> yes, not at all reassuring. And it would be at least avoidable if perhaps you mandated that truckers get paid overtime like people in other fields get paid overtime. Right, because then the trucker's time would be valuable all of a sudden, and the people who were shipping stuff would have an interest in having them finish more quickly rather than more slowly. So how do the changes to the regulation happen? Like, is there a hearing and it gets aired out? Yeah, you know, like like the old song says, you know, you're a bill, you go to the committee, <laughs> they debate it, they vote on it, it goes to the floor. Yeah, that's exactly how it happens, Arthur. Of course it does. Oh, that's good. No, no, of course not. Um, <laughs> what they do is somebody in the trucking industry, usually the American Trucking Associations, right. uh, draws up what they want. Now, do they say, here is the legislation, Congress, pass this for us? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> it's hard to tell, but, you know. Um, you look at most Congress people, you think they probably don't have a lot of original thoughts or cognitive ignition happening. So they, right. it helps to have lobbyists doing their work for them. Then right, they can yeah. just raise their hand and Right, and those shit. guys are real experts. I mean, they really understand how these rules work and how it affects their industry. So they know, they really know what they're doing. Well, describe what happened sort of recently. It's in your story. Yeah, well, for the last three years, we've had these big 
fights over spending, right? Shut down the government and you don't pass anything until the last minute. And there's like all 12 giant appropriations bills all get put together in the cromnibus or the omnibus. Like or, every single thing the government does yeah, is ev- in this Every one single bill. thing that the government pays for. Now, you're not supposed to do policy when you're doing funding, right? They're supposed to be separate. They have authorizing committees. That's where you see the bill and you debate it and you have a vote. Then you have the appropriators. They spend the money, right? Right. So the drucking industry hasn't gotten what they've wanted through the normal bill process. So they've been drawing up these things, parachuting them into the spending bills that nobody debates. There are not hearings. There's no public votes about it. And then you find out about it Right at the last minute when the bill absolutely has to pass and everyone says, geez, you know, that's that's really terrible, but we got to pass that thing. Or the government will shut down. Yeah, or the government will shut down, right? You're not going to pick a fight over uh, an obscure hours of service provision in a $1.8 billion funding bill. Yeah. So but, even if there were lawmakers that wanted to legitimately debate this on someone's behalf, there's no opportunity to do so. Right. There's very little opportunity to do so. and And even when they do... It usually takes something like that Tracy Morgan crash happening right around the same time in order for them to be successful. Because people just aren't that interested in nitty-gritty regulations of truck driving hours and sizes and things like that. Did the Morgan crash affect policy in one of these appropriations bills? It did. It actually uh, – Susan Collins, the senator from Maine, wanted to make some changes to that, that sleep rule. Um, so she sp- – Put it into an appropriations bill. Now, Cory Booker heard about it. And um, back up a second. She did this two days before the Tracy Morgan crash. Right. So Tracy Morgan crash happens when the appropriations bill on its own, without all the other 11 appropriations bills, comes to the Senate floor. Booker goes out there and says, look what's happening with tired truck drivers. Tracy Morgan was nearly killed. His friend was killed. And they had to pull that bill. I mean, there were other considerations because the Senate always has others. But that was one of the things that just raised the stakes for that measure in that bill. It got pulled. It got delayed. But then we had the cromnibus half a year later or a little less than half a year later. And then, and then it got in there. And then it got in there. Yes. So really the tidal forces here toward getting safer conditions for truck drivers – are a battle between clapped-out industry lobbyists who want the maximum amount of labor for the minimum amount of investment versus occasional high-profile fatalities on the streets. Yeah, I mean, the numbers, as Arthur just went through, are fairly alarming on their own. But if it hasn't happened to you or your family, it doesn't seem to have the impact that that one would hope. Well, I mean, it seems <laughs> it seems you have to like put a high-profile actor or comedian into the crosshairs of this of this death machine for it to even get people to show a little bit of concern about it. Yeah, it seems to be true. I mean, there was a, a horrible crash while I was doing the reporting for that story uh, in Georgia, where five nursing students, on their way to the last day of their uh, term, got crushed by a truck. They all died. Five nursing students. And it got some local attention. You know, it got one hit on CNN. But that was it. There wasn't a lot of talk about truck drivers who fall asleep. All right. Well, (laughs) great reporting on this, Mike. Yeah. For more for more reporting on this issue, please check out Mike McAuliffe at the Huffington Post. Uh, I guess be careful out there. Watch out for truck drivers. But understand have a little forbearance that they are really really up against it in terms of 
labor, wage, and regulation. And uh, it's, it's not an easy thing to talk about. All right, guys, uh, thanks so much. Boom. All right, we will be right back. And we're back. We're going to talk now about one of America's most fulsome allies, Saudi Arabia. Uh, fulsome. So, <laughs> it's, a, it's a word I feel was well chosen by me. Um, joining us to talk about it is Zachary Carter, a key ally of Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. and uh, our, our wonderful foreign policy reporter uh, and, and inveterate doomsayer, Jessica Schulberg, not a key ally of Saudi Arabia, right? So, um, so what's going on right now is that there's a bill in Congress. Um, uh, it was introduced by uh, Texas Senator John Cornyn and and heavily endorsed by New York Senator Chuck Schumer. So it has that sheen of bipartisanship that matters so much here in this plantation city. Um, that would allow people who were the victims of terrorist attacks to sue the nations that sponsored or were liable for those terrorists. And one such nation that you may have heard of, Saudi Arabia. And all of this has kind of like made it somewhat awkward for President Barack Obama, who uh, has talked about vetoing this bill because he has apparently a little bit of a dodgy relationship with Saudi Arabia that he has to massage now and then. Jessica, could you tell us more about what is going on? Huh. Well, you got all the good stuff already. Oh, damn. Okay. Uh, well, Segment so- <laughs> over. <No. laughs> uh, well, what makes this even more interesting is that President Obama is currently visiting our number one frenemy in Saudi Arabia right now to discuss an array of things. But, I mean, the timing of this is is pretty awkward. I think it was over the weekend the New York Times uh, published an article that revealed that Saudi Arabia has been lobbying the White House very heavily to not let this bill go forward uh, they threatened to sell up to $750 billion worth of American assets if this bill were to pass. Uh, a lot of uh, economic experts say that this is unlikely to actually happen because the Saudi currency is tied to the American dollar, and the American dollar being unstable wouldn't necessarily work well in their favor, but it definitely shows what a what a big priority this is for both the Saudis and then, as a result, the Obama administration. What would be the uh, follow-on effect of Saudi Arabia selling up that, mi- that, that much of American assets? Probably not that much. $750 billion is just honestly not that much in the context of... Really? Yeah, in the context of a $16 trillion a year economy, which the United States currently has, the outstanding national debt... It's uh, like 120th, is, isn't it? It's like we have, like what, uh, $12 trillion in, in debt... Public debt to the public, $18 trillion if you count all the debt the United States owes to itself in the form of, like, you know, social security bonds and stuff. I, I just, you know, look, it would be like a weird day on the stock market, but this would not fundamentally, you know, disrupt the American economy long term. Oh, cool. So Obama's not going to be rattled by that weak-ass threat. So we're good, we're <laughs> so, good to go, right? So, so more, for, more than the, the monetary aspect of it is obviously the diplomatic aspect. And for anyone that read Jeffrey Goldberg's 20 trillion thousand word piece on how President Obama sees our allies in the Middle East, uh, they know that Obama's relationship with the Saudis is pretty complicated. On the one hand, they're our number one ally in the war against terror, which basically means they let us put military bases all over the Middle East to kill the people we want to kill. 
On the other hand, there's a lot of people that believe that the Saudis, uh, depending on how you look at it, either haven't done enough to prevent homegrown terror within Saudi Arabia or have actively financed terrorist groups that they see as fighting against Shia groups, Iran, Hezbollah, uh, these groups in Syria and elsewhere. I would, I would say it's probably a good bet. It's a little from column A and a little from column B there. <laughs> That's and of course, there's also assessment. ongoing ongoing um, conflicts in Yemen that play a role in this right, and so the what, Iran deal that plays right, a role in this. Right, right, right. You're getting everything. So what also makes this interesting is um, Senator Chris Murphy and Senator Rand Paul have introduced an amendment that has a zero-ish chance of passing that <laughs> requires the Obama administration to basically certify that weapons that we use to Saudi Arabia... Uh, will be used for a good purpose and not used to kill babies in <laughs> Yemen and hospitals and foment terrorism in the region. How can you fight a war in terror without killing hospitals? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. And droning babies. It's good. Good question for the Obama administration. <laughs> true, true, but, but truly, while, I didn't do any of that. But while Obama <laughs> is, is in Saudi Arabia, Senator Chris Murphy is going to be speaking uh, tomorrow at the Brookings Institute here in Washington about... Uh, just how problematic our sort of unconditional alliance with Saudi Arabia has become in that region. And Murphy's been on this for, for a while. Yeah, I, mean, I think he came on this podcast to talk about it. And Saudi Arabia is a really problematic ally in a lot of ways. I mean, they kill a lot of people. The society is pretty repressive domestically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they are powered by fossil fuels that destroy the planet. And they run a cartel. And, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of reasons to be unhappy with the with the Saudis as, a, as an ally. Why are we happy with the Saudis as an ally? Well, we start off being happy with them as an ally because they have a lot of oil. Mm -hmm. Lots of oil. And that was what was powering the American economy for a long period of time. Now that we rely less on oil, um, particularly foreign oil, it's not as big a deal. Um, we just have been their allies for a long time. And generally in foreign policy, it's considered sort of a faux pas to turn your back on an ally. But there's a lot of shit going on in the Middle East, and the Saudis aren't always good guys. And um, I mean, as a result of that, we've been friends for a long time. You know, they'll usually uh, do more or less kind of what we want in the region. They won't start a war with Israel. They'll they'll side with us against Iran. Uh, but then they foment this really hardline jihadi ideology, which mm, so we're has, con has contributed to some bad things. People from Saudi Arabia have flown airplanes into buildings in the United States. Right, I remember you know. those. Remember that. At the same time, we need some Arab ally in the Middle East to let us set up bases to train the so-called moderate right. opposition to the, the Syrian regime. I mean, we, we, we do need friends there. It's just, it's just, as Zach says, when you have that type of alliance for such a long time, I think the original uh, intent and purpose can kind of get warped into an unhealthy way. And, and the other friends in, in the region have been pretty weird and unreliable lately. I mean, the, you know, Bibi in Israel has been pretty hostile to the United States uh, administration lately, and Erdogan in Turkey has been a basket extra case. Extra weird. Yeah, yeah. Weird is a nice way of putting it. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, just the complexity of the of the Iran nuclear deal also impacts this greatly. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the Saudis uh, started dropping bombs in Yemen. To give you a little backstory, the war in Yemen is basically that a group of Houthi separatists have kicked the government of Yemen, who was allied with the Saudis, uh, out, out of power. power. Yeah. They had to, had to flee the capital. Uh, the Saudis started dropping bombs on Yemen in March of last year in support of the Saleh government, the one that's allied with the Saudis. Uh, so March of last year was one month before the interim agreement on the Iran nuclear deal, and then that July was the final nuclear agreement. 
Um, it's been reported that the Saudis have largely seen the Iran nuclear deal as a sign that the U.S. is turning its back on Saudi Arabia and looking to improve relations with Iran. I think the more accurate statement would be that the U.S. wants to have some level of diplomatic relations with Iran to avert major nuclear crises. Um, but either way, the, the war in Yemen was sort of seen as if you don't want us to sabotage this nuclear deal in Congress, then you better help us out here in Yemen. And there are Iran there's there's Iranian influence in Yemen too. So the Iranians time. definitely back and arm and support the Houthis, but I think that we've reported in the past that even the CIA has said that it's an overstatement to say that the Iranians uh, have direct control over the Houthis. The Houthis aren't necessarily a proxy of Iran the way that Hezbollah is in Lebanon. Uh, the Houthi or the Iranians actually directly told the Houthis not to take over Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, and they didn't listen. So there's a diplomatic <laughs> slap fight happening on one level that's, and that's a hot true. war where people are getting murdered at an, on a second level. Yeah, and the, and the war in Yemen, although it's not covered as much as it should be, I think in part because it's so goddamn difficult to go there, um, it's just absolutely catastrophic. Which is, that the, which is something that the Saleh government didn't exactly do a lot to <laughs> right. allow journalists in in the first place. Well, right, exactly. And, and Yemen has been a hotbed of for all, all sorts mm -hmm. of problems. I mean, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula mm -hmm. um, is, I think, widely considered one of the most dangerous of the various Al-Qaeda you know, extremist affiliates. And um, it's grown in stronger world. in the chaos of this war. Al-Qaeda really is like a bad, bad, bad CrossFit franchise. The... Um, <laughs> So, uh, what is Obama? I've never considered that metaphor before. With, thank Both you. Are terrible. <laughs> thank you. Aggressive. Yeah. They tell you what they're all about filled. right away. They write <laughs> magazines about it. Yeah, it's true. Do you think Obama will, in the end, veto this bill? Because if I recall correctly, it's it's widely supported by the other Democratic candidates for president. What well, are you going to do? Not vote to let 9-11 victims sue uh, for well, redress? Uh, well, I, think well, I, mean, I think what you're implying is that there's a big difference between supporting a bill when you're running for president than supporting a bill once you're in the office. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Obama, that. in theory, supports this. I mean, when he, I think there's that 2002 speech where he blasted the Saudis pretty hard as funding terrorism and creating havoc in the Middle East. And he obviously had to tone down that rhetoric a little bit upon entering office. Mm -hmm. Has he done that with I, anything else? <laughs> okay, so I can, can. Was it the Armenian genocide? <laughs> it has been reported that both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders back this bill. You so there you are go. the winner. Uh, I, I think it's likely that he would veto it. I think what's more likely is that he'll blackmail some Democrats to pull off the bill before it goes to a vote. Which will all happen, I assume, behind closed doors exactly. and we'll only hear about through scuttlebutt. Well, we'll write about it, don't worry. Of course we will. <laughs> um, all right, well, there you go. Saudi Arabia. Still not the best of friends that we have in the world. And uh, everything is, uh, the, the arc is trending towards some kind of hellscape, as usual. Jessica, thank you. Thank you. And Zach, thank you. Thank you. And uh, we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We are always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we are joined by MTV News political writer, Honoree Cox, as well as Huffington Post reporters, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Mike McAuliffe, and Jessica Schulberg. 
So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.